All right. Good morning, everyone. All right. Good. Get a response. You're with me here. Good. My name is Jim. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. I get. I have the privilege. Uh, on a weekly basis to minister to families and small groups, and I just want to report to you, I'm coming back from a weekend with uh, about 50 families, about 50 kids, about 10 youth, and 20 under twos, and uh, what a fantastic time we had. I know some of you were were praying for us to have a great retreat, and uh, I've come back uh, physically somewhat exhausted, but spiritually so energized and, and thankful for God's faithfulness in loving our church and loving our families together. This morning, we're going to continue in our series, uh, Gospel versus Religion, and today we're going to focus in on the home and the family. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be reading from Psalm 127, and if you don't happen to have one, either physically or digitally, they'll they'll be projected over screen for you, for you to follow along with us. Psalm 127, we're going to read the entire Psalm, verses 1 to 5. This is the reading of God's Word. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives rest to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Amen. Amen. Throughout my years of ministry, what has eventually grown and the Lord has really brought to an awareness from my heart is the significance of not just what the gospel means to this generation, but also for the next. Not only because I'm, am I a father, but Also because I was a participant in a generational change where the Korean American church was going from an immigrant status to children being raised here in America. And our cultures were different. Our language was different. And sometimes even the Christianity that we learned has been slightly different. It's been different in the sense that what I learned when I was younger from my parents was morality. You are to be good. You go to church. You do Christian things. That's what Christians do. As I got older and I began to teach the gospel, I began to realize that morality is a good thing, but that's not the central message. That being moral comes from a heart of gratitude and not a heart of simple obligation. The gospel at the center of it really reminds us that none of us are worthy, that we all fall short constantly, and that the true message of the gospel is that there is someone who truly is worthy, and it's not me. And because of him, every day becomes meaningful, worthwhile, and beautiful. And as we think about the home then, as we come home, and as we think about this area that has been a place of tremendous rest and healing and restoration, we also know that the home and the family can be a place of anxiety and frustration and even anger and hostility. And there are times even with parents where we, we misplace the idea of who is to raise our children in the faith and where that work really begins. Recently, I've come across a book in, entitled The Disciple-Making Pastor, uh, I'm sorry, Parent, that's me, Pastor, <laughs> um, The Disciple-Making Parent by Chap Bettis. 
And in this book, he talks a lot about the importance of understanding what discipleship is, especially for the parents. And he writes a few things that I want to share with you as we start this morning. And he says, though the family is not the exclusive means of discipleship, it is meant to be the primary one. And what I love about this quote is that a lot of times in our previous generation, what we, what we did and what we viewed the church was, was that's where our children learned about Jesus. In our home, we taught them everything else. And so our generation had a tendency to learn that the gospel was, or, or Jesus was taught on Sundays, Monday through Saturday is what everything else is taught. But it's not true. That as a former youth pastor and Awana director with children, that there's no way we could disciple children or youth in a matter of an hour and a half on a Sunday. That the work of discipleship and raising Christians in the home is the work of mom and dad. Secondly, a lot of times we look at the person who's outside of us and saying, you know, you need to follow Jesus. And to this, Chap Bettis writes, the first battleground of family discipleship is not my child's heart, it's my heart. And that I resonated with this because many years ago I started writing a uh, step-by-step outline on how families can have a family devotion. I was writing this for the parents so that they could take their kids through a regular time of devotion, whether they're on vacation or camping or if they're traveling, that they would not skip worshiping God simply because they were moving. And so as I was writing this, I thought, well, I wonder if the husband and wife are sharing the faith together. So I started writing some ideas of what husband and wives can do together. And then I thought, is the individual even spending time with God? So then I started writing what the individual can do to meet with God. And I realized, man, it just begins with me. There are a lot of times when I think about what my wife can do or my children can do, I really don't always have a lot of control over what they do or don't do, but what I do have control over is me, and it begins with me. Discipleship always begins with us. Before we make disciples, we have to become disciples and understand what that means. And one of the most uh, misplaced and misdirecting phrases that we often use in our home, whether we say it or just mean it by what we say, is that we say do as I say and not as I do. And I, and I look at my kids sometimes and they know that sometimes I yell and I tell them, stop yelling at each other. And I'm yelling at them to stop yelling at each other. And they immediately with their eyes look at me with this, they know better to say it because dad would be pissed. <laughs> you hypocrite. And it's a phrase that has often been said through generations, and we learn it, and then we practice it in our own homes. Chap Bettis continues with a sec- another quote where he says, Most common reason why prodigals left the church, the role of hypocrisy in the home and church, a lack of proactive explanations of the reason for the Christian faith, and a legalistic rather than clear understanding of the gospel and Christian living. I was raised in a home where my parents just simply said, do this or else. So what do I do with my kids? I say, do this or else. (laughs) Until I began to reflect, as I had children, what should the gospel look like in our home? And today, as we think about this, I want us to understand, and I understand, that the home 
is probably one of the most significant places with the greatest potential for healing as well as hurt. That the home can often be sometimes the most filterless, graceless, brutally honest, and I emphasize brutal, because sometimes we say things to one another that to people we say we love the most that we wouldn't even say to a stranger on the street. We say these hurtful things, and anyone who says sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me, had no clue what they were talking about. Because I've been hurt physically and those have healed. But many times when your loved one says hurtful words, man, they leave lasting scars. And much like most of team sports, the family sometimes becomes like a team that is performance-based. And we desire performance and action. We rarely think about what it means to show grace and understanding to imperfect people trying to live together. The husband and wife are battling for leverage against one another to get what their will is. Parents and children are doing the same. Parents want compliance and children want the parents to do and say and get things for them that they desire. Their way of protesting is pouting, crying, or stomping across the hallway. The place that was supposed to be a place of rest can often become a battle zone of self-centeredness, and it's called a home. On the other hand, the home can be, if we understand the gospel, that it's, it can be a place of caring and giving and grace-filled place where rest is found, where you come home and you could just take a breath and say, ah, I'm home. But I know there are many families whose home, the moment you step in, it's a battle zone. There are times, like the proverb says, that sometimes a husband would rather sleep on the corner of a rooftop than in the home because of the arguments and the, and the words that are spoken in marriage. This is the difference between where we understand the centrality and the foundation of what the gospel reminds us of, of, of who God is and where he ought to be. And one of, in the beginning of our series, Pastor Harold said the difference between the gospel and religion is that the religion is about you. The gospel is about God. And here in this psalm, the psalmist speaks about the significance of the difference between the house or the home that we try to build by our own power versus looking to the Lord by faith and building a home based upon a firm foundation that has the right purpose and design that uses the right material to make it last, and that ultimately is rooted on the foundation of a precious cornerstone. And so today, I want to just mention four aspects of building a gospel-centered home. And I want us to learn together again the difference between a gospel-centered home versus simply a religious home. And the first principle of building any home, any significant home that will last, is that it begins with laying the proper foundation. It begins with laying the proper foundation. And in verses 1 and 2, which the psalm actually attributed, one of two psalms are attributed to Solomon, the man of wisdom. And he writes, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And he says again, Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, 
eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. The difference you see even here in the end of verse 2 is that there is restless toil on our part or it is a rest that he gives when he is the one who is the main builder. The foundation here of any gospel-centered home is our God, his authority, his truth, his spirit at work, and the members of that home. And here... A lot of commentators have mentioned that even if it is a house, the house is for those who dwell in it. And a house becomes a home when we begin to understand that the people who who live in that house begin to become a family. And not just a family unit by virtue of marriage or birth, but a family and a home because there is a God who is in the center of that home. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary on this psalm writes, the words useless and meaningless or in vain, that, it, that everything is meaningless, yes, if we leave God out of the picture. Building, a building is useless unless the Lord built the house. Precautions are useless unless the Lord watches over the city. Unless the Lord blesses our work, unless the Lord blesses our family, our Herculean labors are in vain. They are not in vain if God is in what we are doing. Now, As I read that, I thought, sure. There's not anyone that I know that goes to church or a Christian that would say that we would disagree with that. But what does that mean, that God is in the midst of it, that God is center or God is foundational? There's a Latin phrase that summarizes that without the Lord, frustration. And for many of us who feel like building a home or working in our family and marriage or raising children, it feels like toil. If you feel frustrated, I want you to really ask yourself, what is the foundation of your home? For some of us, that foundation was the Confucianist background values of education. Education is premier. That's what matters most. That's why parents in early Even pregnancy are looking for preschools to register their kids in. They're not thinking about Christian education at home. They're not thinking about the wonderful devotions we're going to have with our kids. They're looking at preschools so they could set them going in their educational direction. But what we're looking at here is not so much about behaviors. It's what is at that center. What is it that we're building upon? And these values and these ideas that whatever they may be inherited from our parents and generations previous, that we get a chance to rethink them and then recenter ourselves upon a solid foundation of who God is and His authority. That oftentimes this, this notion of rest, it comes from the Lord and comes from His hand. What comes from our hand is anxious toil. There are many times when I think and I reflect upon parenting in my early years with my two children or even in my marriage with my wife. Can I share with you and be very honest with you that there were times my wife and I are about nine years apart. So not only am I older, but I'm her pastor. And there are many times when I would look at my wife and if she didn't live up to a certain standard or she she didn't say the right words or she said something that was ungodly, I thought, what a sinner. (laughs) You need Jesus. 
And I remember as, and, and, and I shared this before at the last marriage, uh, a family retreat, which I happened to be a guest speaker at. Um, and I remember sharing about the fact that my wife and I went to visit a counselor. And that counselor, who happened to be a friend of mine, asked my wife to leave. And he said, I need to talk to Jim. And I was waiting for him to go, dude, Jim, your wife needs Jesus. <laughs> you know? I mean, he's like, yeah, she's a problem, man. Just tell me that. We both know that, right? And he sat me down and he said, Jim, he said, I think you're the problem. I said, what? He said, I don't think you believe the gospel in your marriage. And to a pastor, them were fighting words. I was like, what? Do you know I preach the gospel every week? I, I live and breathe the gospel in my home. And then he started recounting some of the stories that I told about my wife and I. And, and then he started telling me, Jim, you are so legalistic with your wife. You judge her so much. Where's grace? And after he talked to me, I think I was literally, probably clinically depressed for about three weeks. I can't remember how I preached through those weeks, but all I remember was thinking, you suck. (laughs) How do you not see this? That in our marriage, raising children... That the foundation is not performance. We can't. We're always going to fail. And I'm thankful that when I look to the gospel, that with the way my heavenly father looks at me, the way my heavenly husband looks at me, is not through a legalistic eye, but through grace. Knowing my imperfections. And giving me space to fail, and yet still embrace and love. And that, my friends is a picture of a gospel-centered home. That it's no longer this toil and labor, but it is rest. A rest that God gives because we're no longer trying to reach this level of performance or excellence or whatever perfectionist goals that we may have, legalistically, religiously, or even just practically at home. But it's understanding that we're all a work in progress and that as we reflect on the gospel and how God has loved us in Christ, this is something we need to bring into the home and that the home needs to be a reflection of place where we can make mistakes and no one's going to be sitting there pointing fingers. We all understand we still need to do the right things. We still need to behave in a loving way. But we cover the home with grace and not just law. The law instructs us in how we are to live. Grace instructs our hearts how we are to relate. And so this reward, the the best reward that God gives us is a rest. And the foundation of that rest is his authority and his hope that he gives to us in his son. So how do you know if your home has a proper foundation? I have a few questions for you. The first one is, do you worship as a family? Now, in our generation and in my home, we, we were a Christian home since my grandparents. All four of my grandparents were Christian. Both my parents were Christian. Ever since I can recall, I went to church every Sunday. But we never did anything like that at home. Because church was where we did religion. Home was where we did everything else. Bringing worship to the home doesn't mean you have to sit there and force your kids to sit through 30 minutes or an hour of boring talk from dad or mom. It simply means, do we 
recognize his name, who he is, together. We do it individually. Do you do it together? We practice this at the retreat, and I want to tell you what a beautiful picture it was to see families sitting around the hotel, couples sitting around the hotel, and just looking through and sharing their faith together. It's who is God? Is it all these other things that are busy in our lives? Or is he the most central and significant person in that home? The second thing is your mandatory time. Like this, what I mean by that is, is daily time with God a necessity or a luxury? There's certain things that keep us busy. We, we live in the, a, a, a schedule and a lifestyle, a tyranny of the urgent. And sometimes our priorities are misplaced. What's important? What is priority? And all of us, if we're God-fearing Christians and we're churchgoers, we would all say, God is number one and God is most important. But in our daily schedule, sometimes He is nowhere to be found throughout the entire week. And that sometimes when we think about a necessity versus a luxury, the question is, is time with God not a religious activity, I mean a relationship with the living God, is that a necessity for you or is that a luxury if you have time? One of the most telling things about my heart is not what I have to do from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. It's what I choose to do when I have free time. What do I long for? When I'm driving, do I want to just listen to my favorite music or do I really... If I have a moment of peace apart from my work and family and I happen to be driving, what what are you drawn to? And it's it's not about legalistic acts. It's not making you feel guilty. It's just checking your heart. Is he a necessity or is he a luxury? And finally, is God for times of trouble or for every day? This leads from the second question. A lot of times people think about Jesus as like a doctor. Sorry for all you physicians in our (laughs) congregation, but you know where the doctor is. You know where his office is. You have his number. You might even have his email now. But we only go to him when we feel sick. And sometimes people look at God like a doctor. Only when times are really tough, only when I don't feel very good, may I say, dear Jesus. But I would like to suggest to you that A gospel-centered home doesn't look at God like a doctor in the sense that you visit him whenever you're sick, but he's like a father or a brother whom we see and talk with on a daily basis. This foundation, this relationship, this necessity of life, this grace-giving and breathing home is the foundation that is rooted Unless God builds this house, unless he's at the center, man, we labor in vain. The second part of building a gospel-centered home is not just its foundation, but its design. Having the right design and purpose. In verses 3 and 4, the psalmist continues saying, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the room a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. And I think one of the questions that we see here as we think about this passage is we immediately now look at some of the children and what is the purpose and the design of even raising children? What is, it, what is our goal? 
And I know that for a lot of, uh, a lot of families, sometimes it's the performance of how they do in school. How are they artistically? Are they, are they involved in programs? And these days, if, if you're, if you start reaching junior high and high school and you start looking at all the, all the expectations of students that have to get into a college or a good university, oh my God, it's so difficult. And, and there's so many things that they need to be doing. They need to be volunteering hours. They need to get straight A's. They need to get a certain score on their SATs and they need to be active in sports and music and they have to have a story and all these things. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? And then where's Jesus in this? <laughs> How do we build and design and help children to grow in such a way? How do we grow in our marriage? How do we grow as an individual? And again, this comes back to the priorities of what success looks like. What is the goal and end goal of when we parent or when we encounter each other in marriage or when you're simply a member of a family what is it that we're trying to do together and what is our purpose and our plan sometimes raising children in the family the goals happen to be everything about academia and performance and and reaching certain levels of 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 interaction and leadership and activities all the clubs that they've joined and all the volunteer hours that they put in. And I wonder if we could just spend a tenth, a, a tithe portion of their time and devote it to them growing in their faith and character and Christ-likeness. I wonder what kind of young men and women would be raised. There's an article that was written by David Guzik in, in a commentary for this passage on a website for, called Enduring Word. And he talks about how like arrows in the hand of a warrior that we can consider in the many ways that children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. And he lists several of them and I want to share them with you. He says, first, they must be carefully shaped and formed. And so when you form an arrow, you take a piece of wood and then you start carving out. It's, it has to be straight. Uh, and so therefore, the they must be carefully shaped and formed. And so as we think about parenting, we're careful to cut out the rough edges. Don't be like this. Be like this. Uh, don't spend your time this frivolous way. Spend it in this meaningful way. Or your speech or your conduct or your character. We always tell our children, whenever adults walk into the room, go up and greet each one of them. Shake their hands. Say hello. Did you say hello? And all the things and the common greetings and so forth and mannerisms. And so we constantly think about how they're shaped and formed as polite people, but are they growing in an awareness and love for Christ as well? They must be guided with skill and strength. This, this, the, if you've ever seen someone shoot an arrow, they make it look so easy because they're usually professionals if they're on TV. But when they're aiming and they're just standing there and just, boom, and they just let it go. I, I tried once at, at an apple picking farm. They had an archery area. I'm like, Josh, let's go. And I pulled one, and I was like this. <laughs> I just couldn't hold it. It was just so hard. The tension between the bow and the arrow was so hard. I just couldn't hold it straight, and I was like, ah, boom. And it just went all over the place, right? I couldn't hit this whole gray stack of hay at all. Of course, my son did it. Um. <laughs> and so they need to be guided with skill and strength. The aim and the steady hands of parents for those of you who are parents, how many times have you responded to anger with anger? <laughs> Stop hitting them! Did you hear me? <laughs> we, and, and our kids are looking at us like, are you crazy? 
you're, you're just telling me to stop doing the same thing you're doing right now. And there's no, there's no strength or skill to this. And, and this is where we pull back and say, okay, we're the adults. We're, we are the ones now instructed to teach and to guide. They must be given care or will not fly straight. And this is the common focus of parents' response. We need to pause and remember that it's important that we work on us first before we can really help our children. That they must be aimed and given direction and they will not find it on their own. That one of the things that I've learned through the years listening to older parents talk about parenting was that they talk about the importance of constantly laying the bricks of truth into the life of their children. That from early years, scripture reading or teaching them about the scripture, not only on Sundays what they teach, but what we teach Monday through Saturday, what we read to them and what we talk to them about, that it's important for us to do this because at some point we have to launch them out. They have to go to college or they have to get married and start their own families. And that's why he says, in some respects, they're only launched once. They graduate, they get married, they move into adulthood. And before that time, we get a chance to build into their life the foundation. And they can't find it on their own. Or they, if they do find it, they often fill it with things that are sometimes not very good. And today is more scary than ever. Because the internet and social media and all the different things that kids are looking at, uh, man, it's, it's a lot of junk out there. So it's vital that as parents, we understand what it means to give them the proper foundation and direction for life. And finally, they're an extension of the warrior's strength and accomplishment. And this is what gives us angst and worry. That sometimes I find myself yelling at my son and daughter when they were younger. I'm like, don't do that. It's embarrassing. Do you know how that makes us look as parents? And in a shame-based culture, we use that so much to shame our own kids into obedience. And this is the difference in parenting as we shape our children, is that it's not, if you just talk about the what, that's religion. The gospel is about the who and the why. That as I talk to them about their performance or their life or their, or their character, that I, I can't just stop at that, because then that's for me. And that's, that's an outward thing. But when I talk about the who and the why, we need to remind them that there is someone who loved them and gave his life for them. And that because of him, we want to live in gratitude and honor to him. That I want my son and daughter to live and speak in such a way, not just for me, but because of who Jesus is. That we see our faults and we turn to one another to look to Christ. Love is based on performance of the children at times in a home. I myself included, and I hear parents say, Oh, my kid just drains the life out of me. Why? Because they don't do what I say. They don't go to sleep when I say they should sleep. They don't clean up when I say they should clean up. And I tell my kids, I said, Why do you only move when I yell at you? Why can't you move when I speak kindly? When I say... Can you please clean that up? Sure. Can you please clean that up? Sure. Clean it up right now. <laughs> They're like, all right, why are you yelling? 
It's performance-based. But at the root of this, the significance is understanding the purpose. Connecting the what to the who and the why is an art that takes practice. But it first needs to happen in your heart that the what is for the who and the why. So that's the foundation and the design. The third is using the right material. I don't know if you've ever recently taken out your calendar, your schedule, your to-do list, your bank account. Many years ago, a mentor of mine said, Jim, take out your checkbook and look at all the expenses you've had for the past several months and, and separate them from the things that you use for yourself and you use for God. And then tell me how your money's being spent. And I was embarrassed because I knew it was like 99% me. <laughs> and he's like, Jim, what is the very direction? What is it that is going to build your, your life to be a follower of Christ? And here, the building blocks around which we build our home, they're a couple. They're very common. You know them. But I want you to think about how significant this, this is. The bricks are the word of God. And the mortar is the faith that the word of God sticks together and is built up. Jesus says in Matthew seven twenty four to 27, Don't build your house on sand, but build upon a rock. And this is what he says. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does, and, and, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And I want to just pause there and I want you to understand. It's not just one thing to hear it. It's then to act upon it. The what to the who and the why. And that the actions are not just performance based, but it's for whose sake, for whose honor. And he goes on to say, the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and, the, and beat, the, beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. With a great fall, it fell. And what we see here is the difference between the house that's built on rock versus sand It's not just hearing it. It's living that together. And under the foundation of the who, the words he spoke. And it's why? Because he spoke it. That should be enough, but sometimes it's not. And so here the foundation is the word of God. And I want to tell you that the word of God being shared at home daily with your children and with your spouse together You doing it and then sharing it with your kids is such a vital practice. It's one of the things that we do in our home that Jen and I are committed to. And and I'm not saying this to boast. I'm saying this because we're scared to death what our kids might become. And we're hoping that they would embrace the word of God. And as we do this, one of the things that we do in our home is that as I drive them up to school, they know that we open up the app and we look at the verse of the day. We read it. And then we talk about what it means. And then we pray and thank God. And one of the things, I think my daughter's not here, but one of the things my daughter Liz started saying these days is she said, Lord Jesus, help me to be a good disciple of yours and learning what it means to walk with you and to obey you. And I just, I'm sitting there and I'm melting. (laughs) I'm thinking, wow, this is great. And we're praying for people and we pray for missionaries and that's part of how we spend our morning each day.
The second one is, is he welcomed or is he invited? This is regarding prayer. Now, this is a worship gathering. Everyone is welcomed. But at my home, you must be invited. And a lot of times at home, we think, yeah, God, you're welcome. But my question to you is, is he invited on a regular basis? There are people in this church that you would say, welcome to our prayer meeting, welcome to our retreat, welcome to our worship, but you would not invite them to your home. And I want to ask you, how often and regularly do you invite him into your day? Into the beginning of your day, (laughs) not just at the end of your day. Well, I'm done. I I made a bunch of mistakes, Lord, just forgive me. Whereas in the beginning of the day, Lord, as I start my day, would you be present through it? Let it be fruitful for your namesake. Acknowledging that your home is a place where it's, where it's significant and where it's meaningful. And prayer is one of the things that have meant a lot to me through my years. My, I have one maternal grandmother left. She's going to turn 97 this November. And as she's getting closer, I don't know, I think she's going to live way past 100, man. She's just going. My father is 85, my mother is 79, they're all reaching very older years. But I know my grandmother wakes up and she prays for her grandson who's a pastor and for his ministry every day. My mom and dad still wake up as faithful Korean Christians, uh, wake up for morning prayer at 5 o'clock in the morning, pray for their children, their grandchildren, pray for my ministry here at Christ Central, they always ask me how church is growing. Is it growing? You know, that's what Koreans ask, right? Is it getting bigger? I'm like, yeah, it's getting bigger, I think. <laughs> but uh, I thought, when, what hap- what, who's going to pray for me when they go to be with the Lord? And the scary realization is me. I got to pray for my children. I got to pray for me. My brothers and sisters, you and I are now that generation. We need to be Prayerful. We need to be prayerful and build our home upon this. I grew up in a home where my parents left 6.30 in the morning and came home at 8.30 at night. And sometimes my dad wouldn't come home from his respiratory therapist work from Kaiser until 11.30 at night. He would work 16 hours a day at times. I never saw my dad hardly. We never went on family vacations. I grew up watching the Brady Bunch thinking, why is Mr. and Mrs. Han not like Mr. and Mrs. Brady? What's wrong with them? How come they don't hug and kiss us? How come they don't give me sack lunches, but I have to buy lunch at school? How come they don't, you know, how come we don't go on vacations in those ugly station wagons and drive across the U.S. and sing hokey songs? Because they're a Korean, and they didn't do that stuff. (laughs) And as I got older, I realized love doesn't always look like the Brady family. Sometimes love meant a mother and father working 14 to 16 hours a week, a day, with no vacations, because they had to. And God redeems our homes, even though they hurt, and even though you wish they were different. God redeems that. I love my mom and dad. I kiss them more today than ever. I love my grandmother, but I want to learn from them, and I want to continue to teach my children what it means to trust in the Lord with all our heart. It's these daily times that I've seen my parents and my grandparents 
practice on their own. They didn't always practice it with me, but it's significant. Which leads us not only just to the foundation and the design and ultimately the elements, but now the cornerstone. That every good and lasting building has a precious cornerstone. And the, pre- the cornerstone, is an, it's, it's, it was an ancient practice in building. That the cornerstone was the principal stone placed at the corner of an edifice. And that the cornerstone was usually one of the largest and most solid pieces of rock or material that was used in that edifice. In Ephesians 2, Jesus describes himself as that chief cornerstone in the, in the picture of a, of a house being built with Jews and Gentiles. And he's the cornerstone that keeps that together. And here in 1 Peter, Peter writes and reminds us, for it's, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, he says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to, uh, put to shame. So the honor is for, for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter's talking about the difference between those who received him as Lord and those who rejected and crucified him. Sure, those who rejected him rejected the cornerstone that God sent. But I also realized as I was meditating and thinking about the cornerstone of who Christ is and any, the, any of the, the spiritual building that God is building, that he's not just building his church, he's building that church with families. He's building these church with marriages and with children. And as he's building this, this family of God with these family units and these marriages and these homes and these children, that I thought about, and every time I think about this, I, I, I jack myself up. I thought, what kind of a father sends his beloved arrow and shoots it into a world of sinners so that it could die there? What kind of father does that? I have one son. And I can't imagine, and I don't understand that kind of love that a father sends a son to die for sinners. And not only was he rejected by people, he was was rejected by his own father. For you and for me. And every time I think about that as a father, I, I don't get that. I don't understand that kind of love. And it captivates me. And I know he did that for me, and he did that for you. And until we're caught again and captivated by the gospel love, until we are so caught up and so turned by that, that we could turn to our wives or our husbands and our children and say, there is someone who loves you perfectly, not like me. And I want you to turn to him. Let him be your foundation. Let him be the reason why you wake up every day. Let him be the very relationship that matters to you most every day, wherever you go. And may he be that cornerstone of your life that you build upon so that at the end of your life, you look back and know that what God has built, not what I built, what God has built, it will truly last for the rest of eternity. And I want to say to you that God is not just building an earthly place. When Abraham left his home and his family to follow God's calling in in Genesis, the writer of Hebrews says in 11 and verse 9 and following, By faith he went to live in a land of promise, 
as, a for, as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. They were looking toward a heavenly Jerusalem. It's what the writer of Hebrews says. And I hope we as a church, whether you're a member of a family, or whether you're a husband and wife, or your parents, that our homes would be built to honor the one who loved us and shot his only arrow, son, into this earth. And that as he did this, the most precious arrow that he had, the only one he sent into this world so that he, that arrow, might die so that we might have life. And now the question is, am I willing to shoot my son's arrow, Joshua, into this world for his namesake? But I have to craft it. I have to nurture it. I have to guide it with strength and courage and hopefully the gospel and not just religion. When I look to my wife, that our marriage is not based upon performance and ego and pride, but humility and brokenness and tenderness because we both have been broken over and over again by his love and kindness. That is our prayer. That is my prayer. And I want to leave you with a quote I found just recently. C.S. Lewis said, Love is never wasted for its value does not rest on reciprocity. It's beautiful. And that's what God calls us to do. Love. It's never wasted. It always bears its fruit when it's rooted in Him. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank You for the privilege of worship. I want to thank you for the privilege of what it means to gather together on a weekly basis to tell you how much we love you. We pray that our homes would be a place where we are not building it by our own toil and our own anxiety, but we are building it by faith, where you become that foundation, that corner piece that makes it stand. May our homes be filled with your word may it be filled with words of prayer and love and adoration for you. And when we gather together on a Sunday, or whether we're sitting in the woods before a campfire, may we sing our songs of love for you. May the fathers and the mothers speak words to their children about this God who sent his only son into this world. And may we not make it just about an excellent performance, but about a grace-filled life in which we love and receive each other on a covenant that was made through the blood of Christ. I ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.